The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business, and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. They're ready. Father, tonight as we look at what it means to be free from the law, to live a life of freedom, Lord, I pray you give us insight into our own struggles with the flesh, our own struggles with sin, and Lord, it it will show us further how we can live by faith rather than through striving. And so, Lord, again, I, I pray you've shown your light on your word. Allow us to see what we've never seen before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are up to the beginning of chapter 5, and we will do chapter 5 this week and chapter 6 six next week, uh, which will be the last night of the series. I'd like to begin by... Um, reading the first 12 verses because they really are a, a kind of a self-contained passage and this, these first uh, 12 passages in many ways sum up the first four chapters. Uh, let me remind you of something which is probably worth hearing again that Paul, Paul's what we call letters were called epistles, epistles and in the Greek it's epistolae. They, they, they ha- they're they're not a personal letter as such. They're a formal letter, or what is called an epistle. And they tended to have a quite distinct structure to them, structure which would be unfamiliar to, a, say, a personal letter written to someone. For Paul, he always begins by a greeting. He says who's writing, and anyone who's traveling with him gets included. It might be Paul and Apollos, or Paul and Barnabas too, whoever it is. Identifies the, de- the destination. Uh, Paul's habit is to, at that point, normally give thanks for something he knows about the people he's about to write. He's got what we call buttering them up, you know, making them feel good <laughs> before he rips into them. And uh, he would normally have a thanksgiving. He would often then, before he gets into the, the next section, pops in a little bit about his own life, what he's up to, whether he's in jail or, or just something going on about his life so that he can bring them up to date. And then his letters follow a consistent pattern where he deals with theological issues in a kind of an abstract sense. He deals with, uh, might be a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, a wrong understanding of the law, these sorts of issues. So he kind of deals with their thinking first, or their believing first, and then deals with their life. And then Paul has a habit of... uh, sending some greetings to a few people, again, maybe giving some instructions, bring my quote, bring my manuscript, you know, tell so-and-so and so It's kind of a little bit right at the end. But Paul's, Paul's starting point is that, that the way we live is a reflection of what we believe. And therefore, you can't just write about their behavior. He's, he, he very much, his starting point is their belief system. And that's why he deals with their, their if they've got wrong theology, he hears their te- wrong teaching. He'll deal with that before he corrects the way in which they live. If ever that was true, that is true of the Galatian epistle. 
you know, we have four chapters about belief, fundamentally. And then we get to chapter five and we begin to kind of the outworking, the significance of it for the way in which we live. So these first 12 verses sum up the first four chapters. So Paul writes, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again. And that un again's worth underlining. By a yoke of slavery. You know, he has, because he's talking to those who were under a yoke, were set free, and the danger is they're going to go back under the yoke. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by grace, by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. What cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the law that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, and I'm afraid at this point he gets rather blunt, I will go the whole way and emasculate them, emasculate themselves. You know, why don't they? You, my brothers, were called to be free but do not use your freedom, he says, to indulge in sinful, the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. Now we're going to come to verse 13 onwards, so we'll just stop at verse 12. In this, in this summary passage, he summarizes in three ways. Firstly, that to be under the law is under a yoke, and it's the yoke of slavery. And uh, you know, in terms of various cultures to do with slavery, the slave was identifiable by yoke, by, by, in terms like that. And they had been under it, and it was the yoke of the law. Because he knows, and they know, as Jewish believers, as people, the crushing burden of trying to please God through obeying the law. And it was just, it was just like bearing a heavy yoke. Now, what seems to be clear, having been taught that they don't need to observe the law, people have come and said to themselves that if you're not circumcised, you must be circumcised. If your children are not circumcised, they must be circumcised. In other words, that they must become Jews before they can continue to walk in faith. And Paul says, he says, I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So it's, it's not the circumcision, but it's the symbol that it represents. It, the symbol of circumcision is that I am no longer relying on my faith in Christ to save me. 
I am now relying on my observance of the law to save me. Again, he says, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to, to the whole law. You see, and I don't know if you remember early on, he says, look, once you're under the law, if you break one of the law, you're under them all. If you fail one, you're totally condemned. You can't pick and choose the law. You can't say, well, I'll just keep one law and the rest of it I'll keep by faith. You know, that is the danger in groups like the Seventh-day Adventists who will, who will say to you, well, really, you know, we're saved by grace through Christ, but you must observe the Sabbath. Once you say you're under one law, you're under the whole lot. And Paul will say, he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. See, for Paul, the, the antithesis, the opposite of grace is the law. Because law is works, law is self-righteousness. Grace is of faith, grace is God's mercy. And saying, well, what is it? You know, where do you stand on this? Now, this, is going, this is going to go lead down a path, and this teaching of Paul's was capable of really being misunderstood. In fact, why don't we uh, turn for a moment, turn to right, the end, right at the end of Romans chapter 5, and we're going to be going backwards and forwards to Romans all night. Romans 5.20 He says, The law was added so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Now, Paul is saying, look, the law confront us with our sin, confront us with our need of grace. We suddenly understand that God loves us not because of our self-righteousness, because of his grace. In fact, the more our sin increased, the more grace increased. You know, and it seemed like, it's just like, the worse our sin, then the greater the sense of God's grace towards us. And then he says, what then shall we say? Shall we, this is Romans 6, 1, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And of course he says, by no means. And we, we may have occasion to come back into that. Because <clears throat> this was the fear, in one sense, of the people who are coming in and teaching law. Their fear was that if it's salvation by grace without law, people are going to become lawless. You know, what then is there to protect us? What then is to maintain the way in which we live? Because if the law has been our protector all of these years, since the covenant made to Abraham and through Moses, if the law was good and if it's pure and if it's spiritual and all this, is there as our protector, what is going to protect us if we abandon the law? And people who have heard this message heard Paul saying 
that's not what he said, but this is the message began to go around. Paul is preaching gospel, but it's you're saved by grace, and then it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, you know, he says, well, does it mean let's sin all the more that grace may abound? Is, is his message one which is a kind of grace which says once you're saved, you're always saved, and it doesn't matter the way you live because you're saved by grace. I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry how I live at all. Now, people concerned with this said, well, okay, why don't we then have a message which is we're saved by grace, but once we're saved, let's live under the law so the law will protect us. But for Paul, you can't go that way because once, once you go back under the law, you've, you, you are distancing yourself from Christ. The question for us then is, what protects us? What protects us from lawlessness? Paul says in verse 5, going back to Galatians 5, but by faith we eagerly wait. What, what protects us is the faith life, which we're going to spell out. He says, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value, and that was whether you're a Jew or a Gentile is of no consequence. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now this is the so he's taught that being under the law is a yoke. He's taught that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, faith is the key. And the key is that faith expressing itself through love. And we're going to unpack that a little bit later in verses 12 through 15. But we need to understand it. We need to, Paul, Paul does not see the law abolished in a way that would lead to lawlessness. But rather he sees the law rightly understood becomes love. And that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That you love your neighbour as yourself, and that, that, and that therefore, that a faith. What God's looking for is that a faith expressed in love. And uh, as I say, we'll get to it when we get to. And there's one more thing in this passage. We, from verse seven onwards, he says, "Well, the law, the law's not evil, but it, it, it's it's oppressive. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or a Gentile." And then he warns us against those who will come in and try and rob us of our freedom. So not only can we be robbed of our freedom in Christ by wrong teaching, but we can be robbed by people who actually set out to rob us of our freedom. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. This is not from God who calls us. Where did it come from? He says, don't you realize a little yeast works right through the whole batch of dough? You've only got to have one foundational issue of faith wrong. And it can just like seep through your whole understanding of faith. I've, you know, I've, some of you have heard me talk about it before, but I remember in my early days having come out of a non-Christian family, having understood I was saved by grace through faith. 
began to attend a church, and it was a good church, and it was a good Bible teaching church, but in the nature and the structure of the services I was going to on a regular Sunday basis, I go to Sunday morning communion, and in the communion, they would either read the shortened form of the commandments or the Ten Commandments every Sunday. There was like one confession of sin, the middle of the beginning of the service, and there was another confession of sin. This is the Anglican order of prayer. You know, and by the time you got to actually communion, you felt you were this rotten sinner. <laughs> and I went out thinking, now the first commandment says, the second commandment, mustn't do this, mustn't do this, mustn't. And I went out, you know, with a sense, on the one hand, Christ had died for me, because that's what the order says, one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice. On the other hand, I went out with an understanding that I really must keep the commandments. And as a young person, I have to tell you, because the flesh is alive and well, and the hormones are alive and well, you know, and you're 16, 17, 18, it's a pretty potent cocktail of feeling like you're saved by grace and being told you've got to keep the commandments, all ten of them. And um, there is this danger, in fact, in the church, there is this kind of heretical view. It's not that he's what's called antinomian. He's not against the law. He just understands the purpose of the law is to bring us into a relationship with Christ, where we walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we keep the law as it's rightly understood. But if we don't approach it right, we just find ourselves being distanced from Christ. And it doesn't take the law long to do it. He says, verse 10, I'm confident in the Lord that you'll take no other view. The one who's thrown you confusion will pay the penalty whoever he may be. And I, I can remember, I can think of a lady in one of our congregations, you know, who she met these folk and they were Salvationists, you know, Salvation, and not, not so they were Seventh-day Adventists, you know, and they just they kept at her and at her and at her, and they just go straight to the Old Testament and, you know, and these are the commandments, are you keeping the commandments, are you keeping the Sabbath? And so it was just like, it was just sown into her to the point where she came into confusion. You know, and obviously our pastors try to work with her to help her to understand, but she just couldn't grasp the idea that grace was sufficient. They convinced her that a better life was grace plus law. Just sad. Now, also verse 11, apparently some were saying, I don't know, Paul's changed his mind. Paul now teaches that you must be circumcised. And... Uh, there's, you know, there was an incident, there's some incidents which became known of, of uh, Timothy being circumcised by Paul, and they were able to say, well, actually, Paul himself has changed this. And he says to them, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Because, and you recall this from previous studies, you know, the ones who were the behind the persecution of Paul weren't the Greeks, and it weren't the Romans. They were the Jews. And you know, if, 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 the, if the Jews continued to persecute Paul, they wouldn't do it if he'd reverted to the to Jewish faith. He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished, you know, because his preaching was yeah, the cross. That's the, his, his preaching was the cross. As for those agitators, and Paul was, Paul will, will be. <laughs> As he says, as for those, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves, which is not a very nice thing to say, really. <laughs> but, you know, he knew the teaching of Jesus, 
you whitewashed sepulchres, yeah. you brood of vipers. <laughs> so, that's the summary. Clearly understood. Number one, being under, if you're going to try and live under the law, it's such a yoke. It's not a question of being a Jew or a Gentile. And we have to watch out because we will get got at. And I, you know, although there are, there are groups like Adventism which are, which are kind of outwardly obvious in terms of, of this, for us, I think we've seen it's more subtle than that. It's those who would, would kind of uh, offer to us a pathway of zeal where, where we begin to engage in a religious life which is actually self-righteous based. You know, if you fast twice a week or if you, if you do this, if you go on retreats all the time or, you know, if you, if you pray three hours a day or whatever it might be, that there's, a, there's this subtle view if you really want to please God, this is the path. And uh, in a previous study, I mapped out Colossians 2 for you. And all the, all it's, it can be pursuit of knowledge in the form of philosophy. It can be ritualism. It can be mysticism. It can be self-denial and, and self-punishment. And the, chur the church has always had different forms of this. What we, what we then get to is, because uh, I, I want to do this section, then we'll pause and, and have some discussion. He says then, I say, my brothers, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a simple command, love your neighbor as yourselves. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So he, he calls them to freedom, but he recognizes the danger. That's, that's the issue. The key for us, however, is to say, well, you know, I kind of know how to keep the commandments. I know how to try to keep the commandments. You know, you learn what the commandments are and you try to do them. Not very successful. <laughs> but you know that way. And then Paul says to us, but now I want to teach you another way. I want to teach you the way of faith expressing itself through love. I, I want you to walk in the freedom, which is the freedom from the tyranny, and, but you've got to learn the principles of how it works. Let's have a look at some passages. Let's go back to Romans 12. Yeah, we're under freedom liberates. We're up to point two. Liberates the principle of love. Romans 12, 9 and 10. Paul says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, and so on. Love must be sincere, hate, and we must hate what is evil, be devoted to one another in love. Romans 13, verse 8, Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, 
And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, you know, you may like to, you know, as an exercise over the Christmas break, or whatever, when you've got a little bit more extra time, read the book of Deuteronomy. You know, read, just read that book. But read it with a focus on the whole concept of love and an understanding that the commandments are means whereby one fulfills the general command that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And see the laws and see the whole issue of concern and love for neighbor being expressed in that. This is not Paul reinventing the law. This is not Paul rejecting the law, but this is Paul saying this is what the law is all about. And in this, Paul is right where Jesus was at. You remember the stories in the Gospels about you know, the people who come up to Jesus, you know, Master, can you take teacher? Teacher, can you tell us, what is, the, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And he says, well, what do you think it is? And the teacher says, well, you know, the man says, well, you, you should love the Lord with all your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, you love your neighbor's soul. And he says, you know, you're right. That, that's the issue of it. It's interesting because if this is the greatest of the commandments, then the greatest sin is to not love God and not love your neighbor. That's the greatest sin. It's not murder. It's not adultery. It's, not, it's the actual rejection of the command to love. Jesus understood this. You know, he understood that you can fulfill the letter of the law and reject the spirit of the law. And so Paul is right on in here. Now let's, let's just pause and think for, about this for a little while. I remember when I was a young Christian in my 20s, and it was the beginning of what is called relativism. <laughs> and, and there was this, it was the beginning of the, this is long enough away, from the moving away from a rigid view of morality, of, of right and wrong. And um, you, know, you might be discussing in ethics, you might be discussing telling the truth. You know, Thou shalt not lie. And when someone, was, someone else was saying, well, well um, yeah, no, I think there's a situation where you might lie. And lying's all right. And the, the story which was given about this was, um, well, let's imagine you are a, a pilot or an aircraft in the Second World War, and, you, and the Japanese shoot the plane down. And you manage to parachute down, and you're a, you land, and you go into a, a village in New Guinea, and the head man of the village knows who you are because they see you coming down, and they decide to hide you. The Japanese comes up, with a machine gun and says, do you have any, we show it, the plane went down, do you have the airman? Now, if they say yes, we have him, the Japanese just execute him. If they say no, then they lie. What should a Christian do? All right, so let's have a little discussion. 
right now? What, sh what should, if the head man is a Christian, what should he do? But isn't that breaking the commandment? <laughs> and love your neighbor as yourself. You want to save him. You're right. You know, the answer is that, that the, 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 the intent of the statement in the law which says thou shalt not lie or thou shalt not bear fair, fair, false witness is to not tell the truth for your own advantage over your neighbor to deceive. That's the intent of it. But you don't profit by it, you don't benefit from it, you, no one is to your disadvantage. It is not that you might not love, you know, because if love is the fulfillment of the law, then the loving thing is to seek to save this, this person. But I remember in the classes, I, as I sat back, the person said, you must tell the truth even if it cost him his life. In other words, that, that there was this set, a, a failure to understand that the purpose of the commandment was the expression of love. And that there was, that the commandments in itself have to be rigidly adhered to. Otherwise we lose a moral ba a, a basis for developing a morality. And there was this strong case put that we should always richly adhere to the law and never, never give ground. It's in the commandments, that's, that's what it is. And of course it doesn't work. Anyone who's been in prisoner of war, been in those situations, know that there is this sense that you know what the loving thing is to do. Now the second thing which lacked in the idea, and the because this was this fear, if you move away from a rigid view of the law and adherence to the law, that you'll some, somehow fall away from God. Well, that would only be the case if love is not a sufficient guideline for us. Because if, if you work through the commandments one by one by one, and you say, well, you shall not commit adultery. Can you love your brother and sleep with his wife? No. So if you're bound by love, you can't break that commandment. Can you steal? Well, you could if you're starving and he has an abundance, but you couldn't take all that he has. And in fact, Jesus is sufficiently concerned. He says, if you've got more than you need, you know, take one cloak and give it to someone else. So, and you can work through them one by one by one by one. And if you rigidly adhere, not to the law, but rigidly adhere to the commandment to love, you will not break a single commandment. It is not a way out. It's not a, it is not a license at all. In fact, it keeps you right where God wants you to be, as we'll see at the end of this. So, so there's this issue of... See, the difficulty with the law is the law is a negative thing. It's thou shalt not. And a love is a positive thing. Thou shalt. And certainly from my own experience, I found that whilst in trying to live a life which pleased God and in a life of faith, I focused on the negative 
The negative enticed me to do the very thing I didn't want to do. But whilst when I could convert the negative into a positive, I found I could break the power of the negative. For, for example, you know, Jesus says, yeah, some people are proud because they're not committed adultery. And then he says, yeah, but you, you've looked at them with your eyes. You know, you've, and so you take the whole list of lusting. Well, <laughs> again, I can only think of my younger days as a Christian from 16 through 21, and you're young and you're, you're aware of anything in skirts. <laughs> you know, and there's this, the whole issue of the lust of the, what the Bible calls the lust of the eyes is a powerful force of work. Well, how do you overcome it? Well, you don't overcome it by walking down the street saying, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust. <laughs> no, 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 you've actually got to replace, and this is what we're going to get to in, in the last area, you've actually got to replace the positive with the negative. And you might laugh at this, and, uh, and but, but until... I could walk down the street and see an attractive young lady, see her and say, God, boy, you did a good job there. In a sense of attributing something to God. And I found when I began to do that, and began to put God right there in that situation, I found it impossible to lust. Those just two things didn't belong in the same, same frame. It's like coveting. You know, until... I began to thank God for what I had. I couldn't, pray, I couldn't break the desire to have what I didn't have, what someone else may have. There was this issue of desire to love. And it's like, you know, if you're covetous, then how do you break covetousness? You break it with generosity. Paul understands this in 1 Timothy 6. People are saying, oh, Ian, you know, you teach faith, you teach God. God wants to bless the people in your church, wants to bless their businesses. And aren't you encouraging materialism and covetousness? And I said, no, nope, because if God blesses them, I'll get the money. You know? <laughs> I'll get them to give it, not for me. I'll get them to give it, don't you worry. Oh, I know the other part of the equation. I said, wonderful if God blesses them, and I'll preach generosity. And I'll go knocking on their doors and ring them up and saying, we need money for this, 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 and this. And if then they prosper it and they want to keep it, I say, eh, you're becoming covetous. The love of money is the root of all evil. I'll quote First Timothy 6. But because but, the opposite, you know, the opposite of covetousness is not a poverty mentality. Because I've known people who are poor to be more covetous than anyone who's rich. It's the opposite, it's the love, it's seeing people with whom to be generous. It's the liberating principle of love. If we, you know, if, we're, if we are so free and busy loving others, it's amazing how we don't have to struggle so much about the temptations to sin. And when we're self-focused, self-centered, that every one of those sins will be a temptation towards us. Now, it's, it's a freedom, isn't it? It's a freedom, but it's not a, it's not a freedom which can be abused if you really embrace the concept of love. You know, this is, uh, I'll just say one more thing and then we can have to turn the tape off for a moment, but, you know, you know, this is the folly of converting faith into a theological presupposition. 
But if, if you see the Christian faith as right doctrine, and the pursuit of right doctrine, and the study of doctrine, then you can break the connection between faith and love. And you establish a connection between faith and truth. And what Paul doesn't say here is the important thing is faith grounded on truth. He says faith expressing itself in love. And the sad thing is that you can have people who love truth more than they love people. In fact, you can have such a love of truth that you, have no, you don't care about people. I met them who are saying, no, 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 no. If, if I just preach the truth, I don't have to love them. <laughs> I've just got to preach the truth to them. And that, Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't believe that. He says, I think what he says is if you really believe the truth, you will be deeply compassionate towards people. And you, you encounter people, I encounter people from time to time who want to sit down and study the Bible with me and talk to theology or talk history about it all. And in the end, I find myself saying to them, well, this is all very interesting, but how does it affect the way you live? And you say, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, and I said, well, you know, you know, are you working in the slums? Are you working with the poor? Or are you, you know, are you helping people who are struggling with work or whatever it is, you know? What do you actually do with people? What time do you spend with people? And occasionally I had people say, actually, and, yeah, I'm not really interested in people, I'm only interested in the truth. And what a tragedy that is. Right, why don't we uh, pause the tape for a Right, we move now to this famous passage dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. And it's really in three sections, from 16 through to 18, 19 through 21, 22 to 26. So we'll move through them. Firstly, 16 through 18, Paul says, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. So you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now, Paul's understanding is we battle with two things. We battle with what here is called the sinful nature, what he will call the flesh, what he'll call the old self, the old nature, what has come from the old life. You know, it's like a... And it's like, in Romans, it's like there's a law within me. It calls it the law of sin and death. And it's there. And we have the law, and the, the law which God has given us. And the problem is that the law which God's given us, which is good in itself and spiritual, provokes the law within me of, the, of this thing. And he says, I can't impose... God's law on the law of the sinful nature, these principles which are work within me. To overcome, he says, I've got to engage the spirit, for the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so you do not know, you do not do what you want to do. Now, are you familiar with the passage in Romans 
6, 7, and 8, where he unpacks all this. He says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And um, the word led there is the, is the same word, ago, from which you get the sense of Jesus being led by the Spirit, by the devil into the wilderness, by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's allowing something to move you or to drag you, whatever. And it's to get into such a relationship with the Spirit that we are taken where we don't want to go because of the sinful nature. And that's the, that's the imagery that he's got. And, he, and then we learn, so it's the second, it's the law doesn't help us and the flesh doesn't help us. And I'll give you some references if you're wanting to study it. You know, if you look at uh, Romans 7, 4 through 6, Romans 7, 4 through 6, and Romans 8, 1 through 4. In fact, we've got time. Let's, uh, let's turn back to Romans 7. Verse 4, he says, So, brothers, you also died to the Lord through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what bound, once bound us, we are released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or the law. So we've transferred. Now it becomes clear, if we go, if we go Oh, we'll, read, we'll read out Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That's moving away from the negative to the positive. Now, what does God want? Not, not does what God not want. That's, that's the, the issue. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, for the Spirit of God lives in you. And so, it, it carries on. This is an expansion of Galatians. So if we go back to Galatians 5. What we can say then is that the, the goal <laughs> is to escape being led by the law and led by the flesh 
to be led by the Spirit. So that's the goal. That's truly freedom. Verse 19. Now, how do, you want, how do you know if you're led by the flesh? Well, he tells us the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, and um, which I think is porneia, uh, which, is, which is sexual immorality, a very general term. It embraces all forms of sexual, sexual immorality, whether, whether it be heterosexual, homosexual, whatever. It's just a general term um, of immorality. So they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, dissensions factions or divisiveness, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, <laughs> what's Paul saying? Well, isn't it obvious that these are acts of the flesh? There's not much controversy about it. It's obvious. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we hold our fingers in there, turn back to 1 Corinthians 6. An example of this would be for us here. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters or adulterers, male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy or drunkards or slanderers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what you were. It's a fruit of the flesh. It's, um, it's obvious. And so he's saying life in the Spirit is not keeping the law, surrendering to the flesh. It's been led by the Spirit. Now, if you move, this is the difficulty. See, if you move, you know, the fruit of the flesh are obvious. But if you say, well, surely I won't know if I don't keep to the law. How will I know wh whether I'm sinning or not if I don't live rigidly by the commandments? You know the story of the, how do I know if I'm breaking the, the law of the Sabbath? Well, there's whatever it is, 621 explanations of what you can do to break the Sabbath. How will you know? And Paul says, it's not that difficult to know. It's obvious. A person's covetousness, they're covetous. They've got an alcoholic problem. The drunkard, the envious, the jealous. It's, you don't need the law in that sense to expose the fact that you're, what you're doing is of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there's no law. You know, there's nothing to give. These, these are what it's like to be led by the Spirit. You know, you know the problem with modern Bible, I seminary, it's stupid really, but anyway, I can't believe it's seminary. It was a fill-in-the-blank. 
give, give the nine fruit of the Spirit. And I confuse gentleness and meekness. And, and by the time I put a gentleness and meekness, which are the same translation of two different ones, I had no room left for self-control. <laughs> so I thought I got the nine. <laughs> and the point is, there's no law against it. Verse 24. Those who belong to, to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nation with its passions and desires. What does that mean? You know, we have said we have died to living this kind of life. That's what we were. That's what we were. We have said in baptism, that's back to Romans 6, we died to living the life we used to live. I've chosen to die to living a life controlled by my sinful desires. Since, verse 25, we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this is a, this is, or let's walk by the Spirit. This is a very interesting Greek word at this point. What it means to walk by the Spirit. It's, it's a, the Greek word here is the word taken from the military as they march in line. And you know, if you're, because I, I was in the cadets for years at school, and, and uh, that's another point, don't get start me on this, because last, I, told, I shared in church last Sunday morning, last Friday night I went to the 40th anniversary of my year school year, you know, so I won't get distracted. But in cadets, you know, you're meant to march down the street in a straight line, not just straight that way, but straight sideways. And there's only one day you can, way you can do it is if you keep your eye on the person who's to your left or to the right. I can't remember which it was. But you, if you keep your eye there and the one next to you keeps their eye on there, the one next to you, you'll walk in a straight line. It, as you watch what the marker is doing, you'll, you'll keep in step. And to walk in the Spirit is to keep your eye on what God does. And if we will keep focused on what God does, we will not do what the flesh does. See, what God does is expressed in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and, and, and self-control in terms of it's what the Spirit will naturally do for us. But our eyes will have to be set on Him. And you get it in Ephesians and you get it in Colossians. We either look up or we look down. We either look up or we look at the old life. It's where our eye is at. Where we watch. It's, it's a sense of the life and the spirit. In fact, it's interesting how he finishes this off. Verse 26 is, let us not become conceited. In other words, we don't need to look at what God's doing, look at someone else. Provoking and envying each other. It's this question of a humility, of keeping our eye where God wants us to be. We're going to get to this in the Philippian series that I'm preaching at one stage. You know, that it's, why, it's where we're looking. Looking back, looking forward. Looking in, looking up. We need to keep an eye on what God does, what God wants, what God says, and so on. And because you end up, for Paul, in freedom, 
with the freedom is a view. Am I looking at the law? Am I looking inside at what that wants? But I had a conversation today with someone and I didn't like the language I was hearing. The language was, well, I have to decide what I want. I listened to this for about 10, 15 minutes, and in the end, I said, no. You don't have to decide what you want. You have to decide what God wants. Now, maybe what God wants and what you want are the same. That's okay. But you're looking in the wrong place. If you look in that place, you'll have great difficulty hearing God when God's trying to speak to you. Because the, the flesh, the sinful desires are all there. They're potent things. They take me away from faith. They take you to the flesh. They take you to yourself. And, and to live by faith is to really commit yourself to not looking at the law. Which is maybe the way you're brought up. Continuing looking to Christ. Looking to what the Spirit of Christ is, is doing wants to do. And in faith believing that that's what he do, that's what I want to do. And it is a sense of being led by the Spirit. With the one in front of you leading you. And you're keeping your eye on him. And it says in Hebrews, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So if you tonight, as we finish this, if you're just unsure, if there's an area of your life you're uncertain, ask God to show you Jesus. What would he do? Can you, can you imagine Jesus doing what you're contemplating doing? If you can see him doing it, if it's the loving thing to do, it's an expression of his love for God, his love for God. If you can see him doing it, if it's expressed in that, then maybe that's what God wants you to do. But if you know Jesus, out of his love for God, would never do what you're proposing to do, it's not God. I uh, close with an illustration. I remember... Uh, in fact, twice it's happened. One was with a man, one was with a woman. They came to me and they said, God's, you know, God's telling me to uh, go to Africa on a missions trip. And I don't know when I'll be back, but I'm, I'm going. I'm going to sell some stuff and go. And I said, what about, what about, what about your family? What about your children? I know I've got to obey God. And I said, but... You got family. You got a wife who's got needs. You got a family which has got needs. I don't know. God has told me. And I and I said to him, it's not God. It's not God. If you're single, go. Corinthians says, you know, once you're married, you've got the responsibilities of marriage. You've got the cares of marriage. Go. But there's this. Love for God and love for our neighbor is such a powerful thing. Much more powerful than the law ever was. The law just told us what not to do. Love tells us what to do in a positive, positive sense. Let's pray.
Well, the truth is all of us struggle at times with our own desires. And Lord, Lord, the truth is so often it's easier if someone will just tell us what's the right thing to do. But Lord, I pray that we would we'd embrace and believe that you want us to love you with all that is within us. You want us to love our neighbours. Father, I pray we'd have eyes to see what that means for us each individually. And Lord, I pray we can enjoy the freedom from the tyranny of the law. And Lord, I pray we, we get to that point where we can enjoy the freedom from the tyranny of the flesh. And Lord, that there can be peace and joy in us. Because Lord, through faith, we are walking in victory over these things. Lord, we, we admit again our continual need for for your forgiveness, because even as we walk, at times we don't stand, we fall. Lord, none of us can say we're without sin. But Lord, I pray we'd come to have that walk of faith, which is an overcoming walk, whereby we can overcome the flesh and be such a blessing to others because of our commitment to express our faith and love. Lord, I pray this will be real for us in many ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Dr. Ian Jagelman. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org.